We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Take a look here at John chapter 4 with me. And um, I sent out a reading list a couple of weeks ago about some books that put some meat on your bones. And Jay Harris, his wife, uh, Nancy and Jennifer, run our library right down there by the fellowship hall. And a lot of those books we have on stock. And so they just put them out there. You don't um, buy them, but you can check them out and see if you like to read them. Then maybe you can buy your own. But we got a bunch of those books. Make you wise and civilized. John chapter 4, verse 46 through 54. Let me tell you what this is about. Um, The Gospels... Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics because they give the same view of Christ. They're all chronological. From uh, Matthew begins with his genealogy and the virgin birth. Uh, Luke begins with um, the birth of John the Baptist uh, through his parents and then the annunciation to Mary all the way through the death, resurrection, and ascension. Gospel of Mark begins with the beginning of the ministry of Christ in Galilee and it goes all the way through his death, resurrection, and ascension. They're all chronological and horizontal to look at the life of Christ. Matthew to the Jews, Mark to the Romans, Luke to the Greeks. You see it all the way through. Uh, John is different. It's not a synoptic. It's altogether different. It doesn't go like this. John goes like this of intervention. In the beginning, it begins with, was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten God in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him. And then you see in John, not just a chronology, the closest you get to a chronology is that there are three Passovers that occur because John is the, I'm sorry, Christ is the Passover lamb. But you see confrontation coming down of God and individuals, usually. Chapter 3, Nicodemus, the Sanhedrinist with a theological problem. You must be born again. What? Yes, you must be born again. And then 4, the woman at the well, a moral problem. Uh, Chapter 5, the man uh, paralyzed for 38 years, a physical problem. Then you have the, uh, the blind man in chapter 9. You have um, Thomas, unless I can feel and see this, I will not believe. Um, Peter, I'm going fishing. I'm done. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I'm fond of you. Feed my sheep. And so you're seeing these confrontations of God with individual people. And some are men, some are women. The last one of the confrontations is Mary Magdalene. Uh, some are righteous folks, some are sinful folks, the woman at the well, and they all are radically changed and they end up evangelists because that's John's purpose, that God so loved the world. So we're looking at Christ to the whole cosmos. So with that in mind, I'm going to show you a marvelous little story here about Christ and a guy, we don't know what his name is. He was an IRS agent, so he doesn't want to give his name, all right? And so, uh, and at this time, they hired 85,000 more to to be in Israel. But uh, we don't know his name. We know he's from Capernaum, where Christ had moved to. He saw a lot of things happening, but uh, he's going to end up an evangelist. And as I show you this story, it's going to look very familiar because it's going to be you. It's going to be you. Stay with me right here. In verse 46, we have what is called a non-existent faith. He came again, Jesus did, to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. There was a royal official. A royal official means that he is underneath the authority of Herod, who, who the Romans had put over the authority of the northern part of Israel, Galilee. Pilate is over the southern part of Judea. And so we have a fellow who is a Gentile, and he lives at Capernaum because there's a lot of taxation that goes on with a lot of tax collectors and a very 
monetary money exchanging part of Israel. And this guy is, he is Matthew's boss. That's what he is. Uh, he is, uh, even though he's farther south, someone, well, a guy that might be his equal is a guy I called, that's called an Arche Telonis, a chief tax collector whose name is Zacchaeus, as in a wee little man. And so this is a wealthy, powerful, independent Roman civil servant uh, who probably has no visible needs. He has wealth, he has power. He's kind of your classic Gentile. He would have looked at Israel as an odd group of people with a thing called the Torah, with an odd beginning and an odd exodus. And now they were under bondage in their own land. There's a lot he doesn't understand. They're monotheistic. They don't believe in the gods. And so he would have just stood back because he had his own life and was doing his own thing. So he had what you would call a non-existent faith. Uh, life is under control. God is for those other people who might need him. Were you ever there at this place? A lot of us were, or you know people, that when you talk to them about God, it's not that they're antagonistic, they just got better things to do because they're in control. Well, in verse 46, we move from a non-existent faith to a desperate faith. He has a son who is sick at Capernaum. Capernaum is 18 miles away from Cana. And this guy made the trip on foot or on horse, 18 miles. That's from here to Buckeye Liquor down in uh, Lake Dallas. So this is a trek. Do you know what I'm talking about? Good, okay. So he makes an 18 mile trek to talk to Jesus because his world has been rocked. He didn't ask for it, but his world got rocked. The son isn't injured, the son got sick, and we don't know what with. But he is, in verse 47, at the point of death. He is, in verse 49, my child dies. So his life has become interrupted. Let me ask you, can this ever happen to you? where you're walking along, having just a nice time, and then all of a sudden, something metastasizes, or a blood vessel breaks, or a kid goes rogue, or a marriage goes bad, or the economy changes, or somebody buys out your company, and they're simply going another direction, and they don't need you. Something happens to you. They say that if you go to get checked out with an MRI and you've got cancer, they always tell you to bring somebody with you because once you hear the word malignant, you're not listening anymore. You need somebody. They always said, have somebody take notes that has their clothes on because they're the only ones that are cogent of what's happening because your life has suddenly become amplified and you can't hear anything. And so this guy's faith has become desperate. Now, I have never really heard of anybody who becomes a Christian by all of a sudden in the night appearance of Jesus, they are converted and then go into the mission field. Uh, God kind of did that with the apostle Paul, even though he said to Paul, why kickest thou against the goads? God had been trying to move him. Uh, usually God, and I, I don't want to take precedence over the Lord's opinion here, but as it appears to me, that God starts on the periphery of our lives a lot of times and starts working down to our heart. It may be with the economy. It may be with a, all of a sudden you come to an Ecclesiastes type moment, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And I despaired of life and I hated life. Or maybe a child or maybe a marriage or maybe business or maybe finances or maybe sickness, but life is dangerous. And if you're moving along nice, that's all right. But don't get too cocky because it can change all of a sudden. Amen. It can change. And it has changed on this man. Uh, Naaman the Syrian didn't need anything until he got leprosy. And then he wanted to know who God was. The prodigal son 
didn't need the father until a famine came and he lost his job and he lost his money and he was hungry and poor and starving. And then it says he came to his senses and said, my father's hired servants have more than enough food. I'm starving here. I will go home to my father and I will say, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called a son. Receive me as a hired servant. And the father said, bring the fatted calf. And so God worked on the outside of his money, his health, his occupation, his society, his bank book. And we got him. With me, uh, I came to college. I, I turned down the Cincinnati Reds. Have you got an hour for me to tell you about my greatness? I turned down the Cincinnati Reds. I was a shortstop. And they asked me if they could draft me. And I said, no, you obviously have not heard of me. I'm a quarterback. Also, one of the great quarterbacks in the history of, of uh, college football. And I came to North Texas. And I had it all planned out. And I found out that the Waco paper hadn't reached Denton. All right. <laughs> I broke this and that and this and blew this out and got cross of a quarterback coach and found out that without my mommy to wake me up and get me to school, I wasn't worth a darn. And I didn't really realize that. I, I was a 1-6 grade point my first semester. SCO Pro, Scholastic Probation. And I, we're talking about first aid and folk dance. <laughs> Boom, the Waco flash had landed. And uh, God just started just peeling me back and I realized my plans weren't going to work and I didn't have a plan B and I had no clue about life. And then that's when he softened me up and a guy brought the gospel. We got a guy in our congregation named Tommy Teague. He's one of our elders, runs our finance committee from Jackson, Tennessee, about a year younger than me, extremely gifted guy. Tommy had to make the choice between being a college baseball player, he was that good, and being an astronaut. He wanted to be one, and he was that smart. Uh, I don't own a computer. He designs computers, okay? He's real smart. And so God brought Tommy to himself. Uh, you, you probably know him when you see him. You say, I've seen that guy before. Tommy Teague, one of our elders, listen to his conversion. I grew up in uh, Jackson, Tennessee, and I attended a Baptist church, was baptized, but there was no life change. So. 11th grade, I punted the church and didn't attend another church except for funerals for about 22 years. Met my wife, Lee, during that period, and we uh, graduated college, uh, moved to Texas to start my job here in the semiconductor industry. Uh, had our first son. Things were going great on the outside, but on the inside, there was still no peace. And then God started um, trying to get my attention. He used a two by four. I had back surgery. And then we lost our home in a fire. And during the uh, rebuilding of our home, the uh, builder ran off with the insurance money, left us with a house that was half built. Shortly after that, uh, my second son, Elliot, was born 25 weeks, pound 14 ounces. And I remember laying in the hospital um, next to Lee and, and I cried out to God, God, why are you letting this happen to us? And then the final straw that, um, that broke me was I got accused of giving confidential information from my company to one of our competitors, none of which was true. So I was truly broken. So I'm walking across the parking lot talking to my friend, Bob Lee, he attended Denton Bible Church. And I said, Bob, why does God hate me? And he said, are you a Christian? I said, yeah, I, I keep some of the commandments. So Bob shared the gospel with me and I, and I walked away. I thought, this is great. I don't need Jesus. I need someone to fix these problems. So a couple of days later, he called up and he said, I'd like for you to meet my pastor, Tom Nelson. He's a big sports fan like you are. I think you guys will get along. So I drove to Denton, sat down with Tom and, and Bob, and Tom shared the gospel again. And he looked at me and he says, you're one of those computer guys. You're probably gonna wanna think about this. And I said, yeah, I do. And I did all the way back to Carrollton. I 
thought about what Tom said, and it, something was sticking in me. I just didn't understand what he, what he said. I got home and I told Lee, I said, I want you to hear what Tom Nelson told me today. I don't understand it fully. I'd like for him to explain it to you. So I called Bob and I asked him to set up a time that we could come to meet with Tom. He said, why don't you guys come to Denton Bible Church, join the service, and you can go over to my house afterwards and we can uh, have Tom talk to Lee. So we did. March 10th, 1991, we went to the Summerall Center. Tom was teaching on Revelation. And we walk in and he's talking about dragons and beasts with 10 horns. And I thought to myself, we have entered a cult. But after that, we left and went over to uh, Bob Lee's house. And the three of us, Tom, Lee and I sat down at the table and Tom was sharing the gospel with Lee, but the Holy Spirit was working in my heart. And I was physically shaking. And then after he uh, shared the gospel, he asked us, do we want to receive Christ as our Lord and Savior? And we both said yes. And after we prayed, I felt a peace come over me that I've never felt in my entire life. And God changed me sitting in that chair. After that, uh, Tom and Bob discipled me for 18 months. Um, in 93, I got into my first 2-7 class, and Lee and I have been leading those classes for many years. I uh, also taught Sunday school for several years, and also had the honor of being on the elder board in 2013. Someone has asked me recently, did, this, did the trial stop? No, they didn't. They continued. But now I know who's in control of everything. And as Paul says, the suffering of this present time is not to be compared to the glory that, we will, that will be revealed to us. So I know who's in control. You know, most of us, get a, give him a hand right there. <clears throat> he didn't even talk about his kidneys and other uh, diseases he has, but he could. I mean, God, it, God just kind of unraveled my life, Tommy's life. And I, I really think that most of us know, would you say you can make it without God? Oh, no, I wouldn't say that, but we really don't believe it. And so God, I think, starts on the outside, the perimeter, and he starts unraveling us until he convinces us, you can't run life and you really have no confidence on how to stand before me. We die hard. And so I remember a guy at our church, I may have shared it before, his name was Dave, real outdoors guy, just, you know, could make it on his own, one of these guys that ate tree bark and dirt and stuff like this. You know. And he went out camping on the grasslands of Decatur and uh, got struck by lightning. Boom! But deafened him. <laughs> Guys next door to him that were in our church said, hey, you better think about that. He said, well, lightning don't strike twice. Guess what? <laughs> he went out camping again. Boom! It hit him again. And this time it welded the zipper of his sleeping bag. Just welded it into one place. Okay. So they said, you really ought to think about this. He lived next door to about four guys in our church, and they said that one night, all of a sudden, the house they were in shook, like this, and they didn't know what had happened. It turned out Dave next door had a gas leak, and he turned on the light and blew himself up. Okay. Boom! The house went up. And they went outside, and there was Dave wandering around death. And they said, you really ought to think about trusting Christ. Excuse <laughs> me. True story. And he didn't, and they continued on. And one night they were playing poker. All these guys playing poker there at the, at the breakfast table, you know, there in the kitchen, they're talking. And uh, they said it felt just like an 18-wheeler came off the road and hit their house and just shook it. Guess what it was? Well, Dave didn't get his gas fixed, all right. His house blew up again. And this time, boom, it really blew up. And all of a sudden they heard something at the door and they opened the door, and there was Dave. And uh, one of the guys said it looked like a Saturday Night Live skit or like a Mel Brooks movie. His hair was just smoke going up, and his eyebrows were smoke going up. And uh, he had second-degree burns all over him, and he kept shouting, God's in this, God's in this, God's in this. He finally got convinced. I mean, struck twice and blown up twice. Now he attends a Bible church in Dallas. So if God means to knock you off your horse and blind you on the ground 
and turn you into a missionary, he can do it. He can do it very quickly. The question is whether he is pleased to go after you. If I were God, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have saved me. But if he is going to get you, all the Father gives to me will come to me. The one who comes to me, I'll not cast out and I'll raise him on the last day. And so he will get you. And so this fellow now has a desperate faith. And you see in verse 47, he had kind of a crude faith. He was imploring him to come down and heal his son. You need to make the walk 18 miles. Put your hands on my kid. Pronounce something over him and make him healed. Question, could Christ heal this kid simply from where he was 18 miles away by simply a pronouncement? Yes. Did the man ask that? No, because he doesn't have a pure faith. He has kind of a crude faith. I need Merlin, the magician. I need you to fix something. If you'll think about it, that was probably your uh, sojourn toward Christ. That it was when things unraveled, you wanted him to fix it. And it was in a, in a kind of a crude way. You got to come down and put your hands. You remember Naaman? He gets leprosy. And he goes to the prophet of Israel, Elisha, because his little servant girl said, if my master was with the prophet, he would fix him. So he goes to him and he brings his entourage and Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. He just sends his servant Gehazi, Don Nuts, okay? Just Tim Conway. He just sends him and he says, you need to go to the Jordan River and take off your clothes. A leper really likes doing that in front of everybody and dipping seven times in the Jordan River, the river of Israel, and to announce yourself as a follower of the God of Israel and be clean. And Naaman was angry. And he said this, I thought that the prophet would come out and wave his hand over the place and the leper be cleansed. I wanted my quick fix and then I'll go on back home. Heck, I was going to pay you. Look at all the money I brought you. And Elisha said, now we got to get your heart, not your, uh, not your bank book. But he wanted a magician. I used to pray before I was a Christian when we'd play Arkansas. I would pray for my life that God would be pleased to save me, not let me die. But I never, ever came to a place of, of faith. I had what was called a temporal faith. Fix it now and go away. Well, in verse 48, Jesus says, unless you, and that word you is in the plural, talking to the Jews that are watching him there in Cana, you people, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Christ explains that the nation would not believe in his claims to be the son of God the Messiah, unless they could see sensational miracles. And so he says, you guys have to see miracles. You just won't take me at my word. Well, this father chimes in and the royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies, which simply means I'm not one of these that needs anything sensational. My faith is founded. I believe that you can do this, but I need you to come down to make the journey. I don't know if anybody's ever asked me to pack up and go 18 miles on foot anywhere to help somebody. Well, in verse 50, an amazing verse. Now, 49, the official said, come before he dies. Jesus said to him, go your son lives. That's called a hermeneutical uh, landmark. You can't miss it. Sir, come, Jesus, go. Come with me. Go by yourself. My son dies. No, he doesn't. Your son lives, and that's in the present tense, meaning he's playing t-ball right now. But you didn't touch him. No, I didn't need to. How do you know that he's healed? I know everything. How, do you, how did you make him healed? You didn't go down there. I don't need to. I am every place if I choose to be. But nothing can cure him. I can cure him. But you didn't touch him. 
I druthered it. I would druther him be healthy than sick and dying. I am the Lord of life. I can do anything that I want from any place that I want with any amount of energy that I choose to do it. Who else in the Bible can do something infinite merely by his word? God can create. And that's what Jesus did. He went from first gear to sixth on this man. Sir, come. And so this is called a refined faith. I'm about to deepen you. I'm not going to be Merlin to you. I'm going to make you trust in me, the very son of God. And so, go, your son lives. This man has his back against the wall. There is no plan B. He can't make Jesus do this. Jesus has backed him into a soteriological corner. Nothing will happen unless you trust me emphatically for who I am. Who do men say that I am? You're Jeremiah, John the Baptist, or you're one of the prophets? Who do you say? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. This man had been told that this Jesus was a great man. Christ just took him to a new realm. You have to believe in me as the infinite God that I can do this, that I can save simply by my word. Well, in verse 50, the man, you see the next three words? Earlier, he had believed the testimony of others from up in Capernaum. Now he believed the word that Jesus spoke and he started off. He said yes to Christ. I have no choice. He will die if he doesn't act. And once he has acted, then my son is healed and I've got to make that choice. Do I believe this? And so he turns and he takes the first step of 18 miles and I'm going to make a long journey and I'm going to trust God. Does that sound like our lives? We're fat and happy. Life crowds in. We've heard about Jesus and we go for him to fix it. And Christ says, I'm not just going to fix it. I'm going to fix you. I'm going to bring you into a relationship with who I really am. I'm not going to be who you'd like me to be. You're going to be what I want you to be. You're going to be a creature believing in me that command the winds and the waves. Now, you go. So he doesn't have a choice. So he turns and he starts on that long trip back to Capernaum. In verse 51, as he is going, and I can imagine the closer he gets, he starts seeing a crowd of people come to him. And he's wondering, huh, are they happy or are they sad? Are they making a lot of noise? Is that weeping or is that joy? And why have they come to tell me this? If he was dead, wouldn't they have sat there and waited for me to show up? Why well, they want to announce this like a pack. And so he's now going down. The slaves met him saying that his son was living. The closer he gets, the more he finds out that this is true. Is that sounding like anybody? When you trusted Christ as Savior, had you seen heaven yet? Have you seen it yet? You have not. But you're making your trip towards something that he promised, and you have never, ever seen it occur. You're trusting him. Like Tommy Teague quoted, the uh, sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Question, how does Tommy Teague know? Where does he get off saying the glory that has been revealed to us? Tommy, have you seen it? No, but I'm trusting that what he said was true. There's a fellow in the Bible who is a Samaritan. He finds a Jew that is beaten to death. 
the Jew wakes up the next day in an inn and it's been paid for and he has cloths on his cuts. Where did this come from? Well, there was a Jew that tore his robe and he put this on you. Well, where did I get disinfected on these cuts? Well, he took his wine and poured it on there. How did he put oil on these? Who put this oil on me? Well, that was the, the Samaritan that did that to you. How did I get to this inn? Well, you were unconscious. He put you on his donkey and he walked and he got you here. How can I pay for this? Good news, it's already paid. Well, what about what I'm gonna need in the future? He's paid for that too. Good night. This was my former enemy? Yeah, it was. Where is he that I might see him? He's gone away. He's paid all you needed, all you need, and all you will need, and he's coming back. And so you'll get to see him someday face to face. Question, who is the good Samaritan? Jesus. Who is the wounded former enemy that has not yet seen him but we're waiting on him. It's us. Remember a Roman centurion has a servant sick, sends Jewish elders to Jesus. This guy is worthy for you to come to him. He built our synagogue. Jesus starts off. The uh, centurion sends word. You don't need to come into my house. I'm not worthy for you to set foot in my house. But you just say the word and my servant will be healed. Say the word. I don't even have to see you. And Jesus went, good night. He said, boys and girls, circle up. I have not seen that kind of faith in any of my own people. That's Abraham kind of faith, putting a son on the altar, knowing that we're going to raise up a nation through him, but I've got to sacrifice. That's faith. Well, that's the faith that you and I have. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. Blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears, relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. Steve, have you seen it yet? You ain't been there. I ain't been there. But the next verse says, when we've been there, 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's kind of a cocky hymn, isn't it? That this is all true, even though I'm not there. By grace, my fear is relieved. I haven't seen the end, but I trust him. Peter, though you do not see him, he's writing to Gentiles, though you do not see him yet, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You hadn't seen him. A Jewish guy sees Christ, the, the hole in his hand, hole in his side, and he falls down. My Lord and my God. Jesus said, blessed are you because you've seen and believed. More blessed are those who believe and do not see. Who are we talking about? Give you a hint, they're all in this room. The Gentiles who will believe and you've never seen him. You take him at his word, the same as this guy. You know what his uh, call to fame is in the Bible? This is the first Gentile Christian. And this is how God deals with us. And so in verse 51, his son is living. Now, 52 is the crux of the text. If all the slaves told you, which tells you he's kind of rich, that your son is alive, you would have grabbed him and said, what's he doing? How do you know? When did he get well? What, is, is he eating well? He asked nothing about that. Look what he asked. And he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Your son lives, really, when? When did he get better? Because he knows that it was on the seventh hour, that's one o'clock in the afternoon, that Jesus said, your son lives. And he wants to know 
was this a coincidence? When did that boy jump out of that bed? Well, I believe it was the seventh hour. It was one o'clock. He realizes that there's something more important here than the physical life of his son. That if this is true, God has come among us. You dig? If this is true, then there is something far greater than my son. Did he someday have to attend this son's funeral? Somebody did. He died again. He didn't die here, but someday he did. But there's something more important here. God, the word has become flesh and dwelt among us, if this is true. And so, when did he begin to get better? And they said to him, yesterday. Now that's key. Not just what hour, but yesterday, they said. In the seventh hour, the father left him. If Jesus had said to you at one o'clock that your son was going to get well, and he was already well, and it's only 18 miles from where he said it to where it is, could you get back home in a couple of hours to see him? Yes, you could. Would you? You would run like a striped ape, all right, as fast as you could to get back home. You know what this guy does? He stays over at the uh, day's end. He doesn't run home. I think he starts out and he's probably moving like the wind and then he stops. If he is not true, my boy's dead. But if he is, then he's out playing soccer right now. And I'm in no big hurry. This is called in faith, the dark night of the soul, where you wrestle when you have trusted Christ and you still lay in the bed. I used to do this. I would lay there and say, did he save me? Yeah. I love to read my Bible now. I love to pray now. I don't sin near as much as I used to. Something changed in me, and I rested, though I had never seen the finality of it. In peace I will lay down and sleep, for thou, O Lord, doth make me to dwell in safety. When Peter is in the prison, they're going to kill him the next morning. He's got four guards around him. Acts chapter something another. 12. What's Peter doing? Anybody remember? He's sleeping. What's Christ doing in the boat? He's sleeping. He's trusting. This is called the rest of faith. We rest. We haven't seen him yet, but we rest. We sing hymns written from 1975, sometimes, like Kendall Lucas. And we sing about the grace of God, though we're not there yet, but we believe. Well, this is our, the first one that did this. And so he just went to bed, and I think he would wake up in the night and say, I wonder what he's doing right now. He's probably gone to bed. And he slept that whole night resting through the dark night. And that's what you and I are doing. We're resting. Though we have not seen him, but believe in him, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the end of our faith the salvation of our souls. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. And so yesterday at the seventh hour, Notice, he didn't just get better. The fever hooked him. He went from 104 to 98.6, just like that. It was miraculous. And so in verse 53, the father knew that it was at that hour that Jesus said, your son lives, and he himself believed. He goes from seeing Christ as a miraculous, powerful divinely appointed man, who do men say that I am? Who do you say? Son of the living God, blessed art thou. Heaven revealed that to you. 
And so this man now believed. He's more than just a great, great man. He's more than just the final prophet of God. This is Thomas, my Lord and my God. Well, he himself believed, meaning I'm all in. He didn't just save my son. Who now does he save? He saves the father. He saved me. And that's the way that God does. He'll start on the outside. He'll bring you down, put you back, back up in a corner to where you trust and you find out that it's joy that comes in the morning. They come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. It's true. It's worked. Well, in verse 54, he himself believed. Oh, do you see the next four words? And his whole household. He got home and he said, everybody, circle up. Mama, come sit down. Little Theotis, you feeling good today? Yep, sit down. Drusilla, Felicia, Poindexter, all of you, come on in. And he calls that family together. I want to tell y'all something. Little brother was sick. I went down to get help. And before I got back, he jumped up and started running around. Show did, Daddy. I want to tell you why that happened. I met a man. I met a Jew, the most famous Jew of the day. I heard a lot about him, but I had a chance to test him because I brought him my son. I asked him to come down here. You know what he said? No, Daddy, I'm going to tell you what he said. He said, go on home. Your son's alive. I said, why? He said, I said so. Bye-bye. But wouldn't you, bye-bye. Wouldn't you like to come down? Bye-bye. And I went down and everybody, I took a nap that night because I knew he wouldn't lie to me and I showed up and here y'all were out playing in the front yard. I'm telling you, God used this to show me somebody bigger than all of us because someday little brother's going to have to die. And so am I and so are you. This man can give life from the dead. And they would have said, Daddy, how's he going to do that? And you know what Daddy would have said? I don't know. There's things about him I don't know. He probably said, I'll tell you one thing, though. What he did with our boy, he did with others. And for some reason, this nation don't like him. And I don't know how this is going to end up. But he found out because the way that Christ would give life is that he would die in the place of man, vindicating the justice of God, freeing now the mercy of God to act righteously in bestowing eternal life. And that's how it happened. And so let me just close by asking you a couple of questions to identify with this guy. Uh, do you feel that your life is completely under control? That you have got everything licked, all of the problems, and that when death comes, it will be no problem for you. Number two, if you feel that, the fact of your temporalness is going to get louder and louder to you the longer that you live. If you're a young guy feeling pretty good, you're going to get married someday and judgment's going to fall because you're going to find out you're a sinner and you married a sinner. And then what's going to happen even tougher is you're going to reproduce somebody just like her. <laughs> and just like you conceived in sin, brought forth an iniquity. And you are going to wonder why in nature mothers eat their children. <laughs> Because you're going to say, man, there's something wrong with this boy. And then there's going to be sickness. Amen, Steve? And there's going to be injuries. And there's going to be COVID. And there's going to be whatever that's going to come in. And then businesses are going to buy you out. And you're going to get laid off. And things are going to happen. 
because man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. Job, life's going to get tough. Thirdly, someday you're going to be beyond all human help. There will be nobody else to help you. Fourthly, you might now use God as a, a reliever, as a, someone to step in and fix it and then depart. But God wants all of you. God wants you to treat him like what he is, God, sovereign over all things of which there is nothing in this universe to which God cannot say, that is mine, and he wants you. And when you trust him, there's going to be a period that you're going to have to rest and learn to rest in a fallen world, believing the promise that faithful is he who promised and he will be able to perform it. What he promised, he will be able to do. You're going to have to do that. You're going to have to believe like Hebrews, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the assurance of things that are not yet seen. And you're going to believe that until you go to the very end of your life. And that flat line goes, and the family around you gets smaller and smaller that you're gonna believe that on the other side, there's a hand. And God is, the longer you are, and the longer you walk toward it, you're not gonna be hearing the sound of weeping. Like this man, the closer you get, is gonna be the sound of joy. Is that right? It is. And you will awaken, like he did, to a brand new morning, to where you see your loved ones before you. And so that's the story of this fellow. As a matter of fact, I conclude with the writings of a fellow named Laney in a commentary on John. And he said something so interesting. He said, the progress or development of the official's faith is significant. His faith first rested on the external testimony of others about Christ. Reports had come of Jesus' miracles in Jerusalem at Passover and based on personal interaction with Jesus, he then came to trust in Christ's words himself. That faith was confirmed by the recovery of his son and the fulfillment of Christ's promise. And he became fruitful in promoting that faith among those he loved the most, his own family. The initial and hesitant faith that led him to Cana eventually culminated in the faith of an evangelist no step along the way is insignificant in the progress and maturing of a genuine and abiding faith. So if you could hear this and go, that was me, that was me. God brings you along slowly and surely as you kick against the goads. Then he says, it is rather exciting to see the ministry of Jesus expanding in John 3 through John 5. In chapter 3, new life is offered to a Jewish religious teacher, Nicodemus. In John 4, new life is offered to the despised Samaritans. And in this text, life is offered to the family of Gentiles. The Lord was teaching the disciples an important lesson in world missions. The blessings of his redemptive work extend not only to the Jews, Nicodemus, but to the Samaritans, the woman at the well, and to the Gentile nations as well, a pagan IRS agent. The question each believer must ask, what part am I having in God's plan to bring spiritual blessing to the world? Are we sharing our faith, supporting world missions, praying for the nations, participating in global outreach, either short-term, our career, either near, or in our family and community? Isn't that good? John chapter 4. Father in heaven, I pray for we who know you that we amen this. We remember being self-reliant. 
we remember you violating our um, solidarity. We remember the crude faith we started with. We remember having to be refined. We remember having the fear of God put in us and standing with our back against the wall and trusting the only hope we had. And we remember as we approached and walked home that the, the joy got louder and louder, trusting what we had not seen. And we remember moving in our faith from just a fix-it God to the sovereign of the universe that was not just effective for my child, but he's effective for me and my family. And Lord, there are those here that still are stuck at stage one. And we're glad they're here. But as you batter down their obstacles, as you become the hound of heaven pursuing them, it is said that God cannot use a man until he hurts him deeply, until you take away the myth of our day that we've got it all under control. No, you don't. And someday that's going to be the last thing that we're going to have to answer as to whether we have answered that question correctly. And so I pray if there is one here that has never believed the word that Jesus spoke, who said, the Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Might that be their prayer this day? Because that is all that is left for them to do. They don't have to make a pilgrimage. They don't have to offer up incense. They don't have to do a good work. They merely have to stop, lift their eyes, and open their hands. And like the manger of his birth, to say, this is the place that you are not occupying, come in. It's all I've got. Now you invade my life by your omnipresent spirit, your omniscient spirit, your omnipotent spirit, and nurse me to maturity. And Father, might that be their prayer this day, and we'll ask it in Jesus' name, amen.